Hi, and welcome to a special series of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Robinson Meyer. I'm a reporter at The Atlantic, and I'm a journalism fellow at EPIC. Today, in this second installment of the series, we're talking about transportation emissions. Our guests are Sam Ori, the executive director of EPIC, and Korichiro Ito, an associate professor at the Harris School of Public Policy. Now, transportation emissions are the biggest climate problem in the United States today. And cars and light-duty trucks, like the kind you'd buy at a dealership and that most Americans own, are the biggest contributor to this big problem. Cars and light-duty trucks, in fact, are responsible for about 20% of total U.S. national greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the main way we have of regulating cars and light-duty trucks are the fuel economy standards. These are rules that are issued by the Department of Transportation and also the EPA uh, that slowly require, over time, new cars to get more fuel efficient and to emit fewer greenhouse gases. Uh, They're the reasons that many new cars, for instance, turn their engine off when you stop at a red light. So far from the Biden administration, we've heard mostly proposals about how to boost electric vehicle uptakes. But these fuel economy rules are extremely important, and they're also due for an update. That's what we're here to talk about today. Welcome, Sam and Caritro. Tell us about the fuel economy rules. How do they work? Why are they important? Well, I mean, I guess I would start by saying it's the cornerstone of, of you know, fuel policy for the U.S. and the transportation sector. Um, it is really whether you're, you know, whether you're talking about as the rules were originally intended to cover oil use and energy security, or you're talking about GHG reductions, they are really the the star of the show for the U.S. for U.S. policy when it comes to vehicles. Um, and you know, I think the target has changed a little bit over time. You know, as I said, like back in the 1970s, when the rules, when the first you know corporate average fuel economy rules were first put in place. They were put in place specifically in response to the oil embargo, to the 1973-74 oil embargo. And you know, policymakers looked at the US vehicle fleet and they said, okay, this is a very inefficient fleet. Um, it was a big part of why the US economy was so vulnerable to an oil price shock at that time. Um, you know, transportation being such a key part of the economy. And the fleet at the time actually was less efficient than it was in the 1950s. Uh, so cars and trucks in the U.S. in the 1970s were badly inefficient. Uh, and so policymakers were, were looking at ways to respond to the oil shock. And they said, OK, well, here's an, a logical place to start. Let's make, uh, let's make our cars and trucks more efficient. And so you know, the Energy Policy and Conservation Act of 1975 created the first fuel economy standards, defined them uh, as a miles per gallon standard. And, you know, actually created all kinds of little things that persist uh, all the way to this day, including, for example, treating cars and light trucks separately, creating separate classes for cars and light trucks, which is a a thing I think we'll probably talk about that I feel like sort of undermines and beleaguers the whole whole system to this day. Um, And so, you know, that was really how, you know, uh, fuel economy policy in the U.S. began. And I think, you know, Kuichiro could probably speak to this, uh, you know, better than me, but I think also began in many countries around the world, industrialized countries that were affected by the oil shocks, um, you know, first ha- had their first kind of vehicle policies uh, and, and efficiency standards that were put into place at that time. Um, you know, the two, one or two other points I would just make is by way of kind of introduction is they, 
the standards in the U.S. made some really important improvements, or you know, there was there was measurable improvement in efficiency in the 70s and into the 80s. But at that time, in the 1980s, in the mid 1980s, uh, as oil prices kind of pulled back, and you, you know, the U.S. was competing more and more globally for for in the auto market, uh, there was a sort of a real hiatus and a real pause on improving efficiency. And the standards kind of sat idle uh, all the way really until the mid-2000s, uh, until 2004 uh, and the George W. Bush administration, when oil prices started going up again in the mid-2000s, um, you know, was under pressure to act and started, you know, making little tweaks, particularly to the, to the truck components in the mid-2000s. Uh, but the rules as we could, as we sort of know them today, the, the, the national program that has EPA as part of it and is designed to really now deal with a new problem, uh, or, or at least a different problem than the original rules were, were designed to deal with, um, you know, the, the greenhouse gas emissions from transportation and climate change, you know, that really took hold in, in following the endangerment finding and all the, the things that happened in 2009. And then the Obama administration coming in in 2012 created uh, the national program, which has really is really kind of the system we have today. But, you know, it really does still you know, is still built on many of those things. Many of those elements that were first created in the mid 1970s are still part of the program today. Uh, and now it's just been sort of pointed in a different direction, which is to deal with greenhouse gas emissions. Right. There's like, I just want to make sure I understand this and maybe end or get, uh, I guess, make sure we're on the same page about this. Right. It like starts as a fuel saving program. <laughs> run by the Department of Transportation or or the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which is part of the Department of Transportation. And then, like, in the 2000s, it also, like, EPA also takes over some of it, but focused on, like, a totally different, on a related but ultimately different problem, right? Like, on on climate change and on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, so so right. So the Clean Air Act gives EPA this authority, right, to regulate pollutants. And so a group of petitioners in, I think, 2008, around 2008, uh, goes to EPA and says, you should be treating carbon dioxide as a pollutant and you should use yeah. the Clean Air Act to, to deal with it. Um, and, you know, this is like... it happening in the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. So at first, you know, the response is not overwhelmingly warm. Um, but, you know, it makes its, it makes its way through the courts and eventually the courts uh, rule against EPA and say that, yeah, you should be treating uh, carbon dioxide as a pollutant. And then EPA over the next year eventually takes the next step of saying not only is it a pollutant, but yes, it does endanger public health. And so therefore we're going to, EPA is going to play a role in vehicles now. But right, it was controversial. I mean, at first, uh, the Bush administration basically says to EPA or says to the petitioners, no, EPA can't regulate this because NHTSA already does or Department of Transportation already does as part of um, its responsibilities under the, uh, under EPCA, uh, under yeah. the 1970s bill or law, and then, and then also ESA. And so, no, we're not going to do it. But, you know, they lost in court and then, you know, the endangerment finding comes along. And so that did bring in, right, EPA and give EPA a role uh, in regulating in, in regulating the efficiency of light duty vehicles. 
but right for a different, a totally different purpose for for greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Um, how successful? So basically, like, there's this moment in two thousand, the late two thousands, and then it becomes uh, that the Obama administration takes that over, right, uh, and passes the kind of initial fuel economy plus uh, greenhouse gas standards for cars and light trucks. How successful? have those been uh in your opinion on-road fuel economy for the entire u.s light duty vehicle fleet 2019 24.9 miles per gallon uh okay in 2015 it was 24.6 miles per gallon so almost no improvement from 2015 to 2019 and if i look back to 1987 it was 22 miles per gallon so I say that first as a way of framing to say, I think there's questions about how effective they have been. Um, and I think there's lots of reasons why they, why the effectiveness hasn't been as much as we hoped. Um, we hoped, you know, when the, when the national program was put into place that it was going to achieve these massive reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, um, and massive reductions in fuel use over the life of the program from 2012 to 2025. Um, but the rules were had all these little elements tucked into them that over that, that over time served to ultimately undermine their effectiveness. And so, you know, the treatment of light cars and and or of passenger cars and light trucks as separate categories and, and giving light trucks uh, a much more lenient standard to meet, a much more lenient target to meet. Um, the the inclusion of footprint-based standards where even within cars and trucks, then you have all these subcategories and the bigger the car, the bigger the truck, the more lenient the standard. Um, the inclusion of things like bonus credits for flex fuel vehicles, regardless of whether they actually run on ethanol, just by selling the vehicle, you get the credit. So. All throughout the rule, there's all these little things that are kind of tucked in there. And in the beginning, some people are kind of warning and saying, hey, this is going to potentially undermine. It creates an incentive for the automakers to sell more trucks, to sell bigger cars, sell bigger trucks. And it's going to undermine the effectiveness of the rules. Uh, but there was all kinds of political compromises that were needed to get the support of the automakers and to get the support of uh you know, Michigan Democrats and many pro-industry Republicans. And so they made all these little compromises around, you know, to different parts of the rule. But, you know, unfortunately, what we did see is I think the, a lot of those predictions came to pass. Um, the If you look at the footprint, you look at the size of the vehicles over the last, you know, from 2012 through, uh, through 2019, cars are getting bigger. Trucks are getting bigger. The whole fleet is getting bigger. Automakers made a huge shift from selling a fleet of mostly cars to selling a fleet of mostly trucks. And so why does that matter? Well, all of the savings that, that were predicted, that were projected when these rules were passed were predicated on a, a predicted fleet. That's a thing I think a lot of people don't understand. When, when EPA or you know, when, when the Obama administration said that the, that the fleet is going to be 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025, no. That was a projection based on a certain mix of vehicles. They were, pro they were projecting that 
there was going to be this fleet of mostly cars and smaller cars that were sold in 2025. And so that was going to be the, the performance of that particular fleet. But we're not seeing that. The fleet is totally different than what was projected. It's way bigger. It's way more trucks. And it's changing. It's totally changed the performance. And it's changed what we're actually getting out of it in terms of uh, emissions reductions and fuel savings. And it's not it's not what was projected. It's substantially less than what was projected. And so like, this is the biggest change in how the car market works over the past 10 years, right? Like people have shifted to larger vehicles. If you had a sedan, you've shifted to a crossover. If you had a crossover, maybe you've shifted to an SUV. Uh, there's just more SUVs and three row SUVs and crossovers sold now. I think two crossovers for every one sedan or two crossovers and SUVs for every one sedan that's being sold in uh, that's a very broad shift in consumer sentiment that we've seen. Do you think that's are are you saying that's you think that's a outgrowth of the emissions rules and that basically like uh, because all these all these little carve outs and it's easier for automakers to not have to meet the rules like that's they've slowly expanded excuse me car sizes because that way they are operating under more lax rules. So maybe I can I can talk about a little bit about this. So there, there are two um, big aspects of the current fuel economy regulation in the U.S. related to this point. Um, in in my academic paper, I called it attribute based. So policy is based on some attribute of a car, and there are two big attributes here. One is passenger car versus light truck, and light truck. Uh, it's its name. The name is light track, but that basically includes SUVs. So for now, it's SUV versus non-SUV cars. Those two separate categories have different target of uh, MPG, and that's one. The other one is, as some mentioned, within each segment, we all also have additional attribute, which is footprint. So the size of the footprint of each car. If the car is bigger, then the car can get less stringent regulation target. So those two things basically motivate automakers to make cars bigger or maybe more make more SUVs. Also, consumers to choose those cars because those cars tend to get cheaper than others uh, because of the regulation. So you know those two things probably motivate consumers and producers to shift larger cars. But I do also think there is, you know, something unrelated to the policy, possibly. There has been a change in preference of consumers in the U.S., you know, preferring more kind of bigger cars. That's also possible, but realistically, probably there are a combination of the policy impact and the fundamental change in the preference. Yeah, it's and you have to go back. I mean, I think, you know, don't just look at the current, the, uh, the current standards. I mean, sure, the... Footprint-based standards, footprint-based attribute standards were, came into place in, in, in law in 2007 and were, were not implemented in an actual standard until 2011, really. Uh, I mean, a little bit in the trucks before that, but really not until 2011. Uh, but the differentiation between cars and trucks, that goes back to the 1975 rule. Uh, and I mean, you know, if you just look at a chart of light truck sales, light trucks as a share of the U.S. market, starting in the 19, starting from basically the beginning, you see this, uh, you know, all of a sudden this very large rise in in the sales of light trucks. 
And you can also look at the behavior of the automakers. The automakers uh, did a lot of things that, that told you they were trying to, you know, avoid regulation by making bigger vehicles. The Hummer is a perfect example. Uh, they built vehicles that were bigger than the weight class that was regulated to get, you know, so they could sell things that weren't regulated. They did things like the PT Cruiser that they, okay, the seats lay back. So this is an off-road vehicle, you know, like the automakers did things that, that were clearly in response to the regulation. They're pre the 2012, but they're, but they're part of the, they're still part of the original fuel economy regulation that, that was passed in the seventies that said, you know, in the beginning it was a 6,000 pounds. Any vehicle bigger than 6,000 pounds, you know, is, a, is kind of like up to the Secretary of Transportation or in, in the original law is exempted from regulation. Um, you know, the Bush administration raised it eventually to capture the Hummer, for, you know, for example. But, you know, it just the automakers were doing things around the edges, around the margins of the rule that showed you they were there was an incentive to build bigger. You know, the other thing is to remember, too, is, I mean, market forces obviously play a role. Um, and. I think if you look at the uh, what happened in the U.S. during the national program during the period from 2012 till now, and and you know, just take a look at the program as a whole, uh, and their and their projections, their fleet projections. I think if you read the original rule, what you what you discover is that it, it, when they were projecting what the fleet of vehicles sold in the U.S. would look like, like for example, one thing that that really drives the the makeup of that fleet is your input on oil prices. And they were making those projections in 2012 when oil prices were, you know, $100 a barrel and uh the we're still in the in the period of time when we're talking about you know, um scarcity, I guess in a way of uh, in oil markets and that future supplies are heavier and more uh, more expensive to to get out of the ground etc and so you know that high oil price really had an impact on people's thinking about what the future fleet would look like and what consumer preferences would look like well you know that obviously that's not where it really came to pass we had a big oil price crash in 2014 and if you look at the makeup of US vehicle sales uh, over the last you know 10 years or so you see a big change when when that happened when the oil prices crashed in 2014 the the shift to SUVs accelerates so you know those kinds of th there's lots of different factors that drive people's preferences about vehicles and what they're what they're interested in what they're interested in buying uh, oil prices i think are are a very important one and and it cuts both ways there's times when oil prices are high and you see consumers you know, really demanding much more efficient, lighter, smaller vehicles. Uh, but we're now in this era of potentially lower prices for longer, given, you know, what's happened on in U.S. oil markets and, and the global market. Um, and so it, it really makes you wonder if it's if we should we if we shouldn't be kind of, you know, assuming that the uh, things will be different, you know, or, or uh, that the future probably is more of consumers being willing to to sacrifice on efficiency for comfort and for and for space and those kinds of things. It's so interesting. So, uh, how do we fix it? <laughs> how do we fix these issues? If you're going to talk about how to fix it, you also have to you it has you have to be super clear about how we got what we got. And I don't want to you know uh, both Kuicho and I probably come across as like very. Um, you know, hostile to the to the setup 
of the of attribute-based standards and the truck rule and all that, uh, or, or you know, the dual categorization. But you know, I, in two thousand seven. I was working in Washington, D.C. as part of a, a group that was really, I think, largely responsible for bringing a lot of pro-industry Republicans to the table to support fuel economy standards. And we spent a lot of time talking to the companies and talking to lawmakers and figuring out what the compromise was going to be that was going to get Republicans to support fuel economy standards. And, you know, the attribute-based standard was pretty important to get that support. Um, the politics around the U.S., the big three, you know, in particular, uh, and Chrysler especially, were complicated. And Chrysler was there saying, we cannot support this. And Chrysler's, you know, lobbyists are up there on the Hill talking to lawmakers and saying, you shouldn't support this if it is going to mean that we have to make a minivan that is as efficient as a Toyota Camry. We... We can't support that. And so we want you to craft a system that doesn't make us uh, make vehicles that are as efficient as whatever the average is, but that just tells us all we have to do is make our minivans slightly more efficient every year. We can keep making minivans, but but and as long as we just make them a little bit more efficient, we're fine. Uh, and, you know, from a political standpoint, you're sitting there listening to that. It has a certain appeal to it and a certain logic to it. And it's it was persuasive. And it's, I mean, that's why that, that ultimately ended up in the law because the, the U.S. big three, especially Chrysler, uh, and, you know, many, uh, auto state Democrats and pro industry Republicans wanted those kinds of nuances or, and flexibilities. Well, and, and that there's something else here too that you just alluded to, but is like what we know politically, which is, not only do you have when you're regulating autos, not only do you have, you know, pro oil industry or, or you know, anti-regulation Republicans for any number of reasons, either because it's a local industry or because of ideological reasons. As you just said, you have Democrats from Michigan who are in. uh who have been in Congress for a while and are very protective of their seats, but also are on seats that in a huge Republican wave could maybe flip and, and represent a lot of like labor interests and labor too is also often skeptical of, uh, of really aggressive regulation because it needs its, you know, the companies where it has shops to do well. Yeah. It's a challenging. Uh, it's a challenging question, uh, and it, but it goes to the question of how do you fix it? Because you know, I think that if we look at it now, especially in the context of climate change, I, I think it's it should be non-controversial to look at the current system and say, uh, you know, the compromise was too costly. The amount of um, the amount of emissions reductions that were lost. As, as all of the U.S. fleet is shifting over to these heavier vehicles, is, it, it's, it's not compatible with, a, with the pathway that you know, scientists say is needed to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Uh, we are, we, the, the rubber is kind of meeting the road here in the sense of we have not wanted to pay for the costs of um, of dealing with emissions in the transportation sector. And so we've 
created these kind of like political Frankenstein policies that hide the costs and you know make things easier on on domestic industries, but they're very ineffective. And you know, the, so looking forward to how to fix it, I, it to me it's it, it requires a, a fundamental rethink of the way to approach the policy in the transportation sector. So I guess from economist's point of view, um, you know, what Sam mentioned is also important. Basically, okay, maybe in, in, in the political uh, situation uh, in 2007, there was a constraint, right? So maybe domestic automakers or some automakers uh, uh, need something to, to pass this law. And then for some reason, you know, in reality, we passed this strange incentive law, which involves attribute-based regulation. So the, the really bad thing about this is it incentivizes all automakers' behavior toward in inefficient ways. So everyone now has incentive to make cars bigger, um, as we discussed. To, you know, by, by creating this incentive, in a sense, the government accomplished the redistribution redistribution of the cost burden from one automaker to some, someone. So there, in theory, there was another way to do this. We could have, uh, we could have like a no attribute-based regulation. And if the government really needs, needed to do it, they could directly do the redistribution. For example, uh, we, could we could talk about this you know, credit trading market. Okay. Uh, for the credit trading or just pure lump sum, like a money transfer, the government could transfer some money to those automakers to let them pass the law and then not create any strange incentive to upsize the cars. Does it make sense? So from the economics, economist perspective, that's actually much better. Uh, if you have to do the redistribution, that's fine. That's a political decision, right? Do it targeted. Yeah, targeted um, redistribution. That's a lump sum money uh, to some automakers. Um, you know, I don't know if it's politically possible, but this would be much better than creating like a strange incentive to indirectly redistribute the cost. And that's what has been going on in the fuel economy regulation. Um, and in reality, what I wanna emphasize is in the end, that just makes the, all the regulation costs unnecessarily bigger than what you know, it can be. Um, so in the end, those all burdens basically come back to all the consumers. So like, well, why are we doing this? Um, so if there's a political constraint, there's another way to deal with it. So we have to be more kind of smarter than maybe <laughs> what it was. Um, yeah, that, that's what I would always think about this. So how much of this can be done with, I think there's two different things that, or three different things we're talking about here. There's um, the footprint, there's the footprint based rules. And then there's the cars and light trucks rules. And then there's like these credit markets that we were just talking about. Uh, what can be done here by the administration and what can be done here only by Congress? Because that's a very important difference <laughs> and it's only likely to become more important as, you know, 
Democrats get, uh, you know, likely lose control of Congress in the next few years. There are some things that can be done by the administration. I mean, Coitro's point about the credit markets, I think, is a really good one. That the credit markets are actually, um, they have the potential to be a really efficient way to handle the kinds of problems with, you know, that let's call it the heterogeneous cost of compliance across automakers for the standards. Different automakers will be better or worse at producing vehicles that meet the standards. Uh, and, and, you know, there's actually a good amount of economics research that shows that, that demonstrates and documents that the automakers have very diverse costs of compliance. And so a functioning credit market could be one really good way for you know car companies that are for them it's very cheap to generate credits um, and they're very efficient at generating lots of credits every year they're they're over complying you know, so I guess I should say the way that you generate credits in this market is you over comply so there are a handful of auto market of auto companies that are consistently over complying with the standards which you know tells you it's probably pretty cheap for them to do so um, and what you'd like to see is those companies then, you know, being able to sell credits to the, for the, to the companies for whom it's, it's harder to comply. I don't think that the credit markets as they exist today were contemplated uh, in, 20, in 2007 when the attribute-based standards were put into place and, you know, all those things ended up happening. They didn't really contemplate, I don't think, that the credit markets could work that way. Um, a lot of that really came about when, uh, when the EPA, when EPA came in and, and, you know, after the endangerment finding and, and EPA started being a, a major party in regulating this, you know, vehicle efficiency. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean the bottom line is like today, looking forward, we're at this moment now where a lot of this is going to be reevaluated, uh, you know, by the Biden administration looking forward. I think this is a, is a really good opportunity to think about how to fix these things up. So you could do something like, uh, fine, we're going to have separate light truck standards uh, from cars, but they're going to be very close or maybe identical. Um, and you know the way that we're going to handle the, the, the facts on the ground of different auto companies having different costs of compliance based on how many trucks they sell or how many cars they sell or whatever else is you know we're going to have really well-functioning credit markets. I mean, that would be a really, I think, a really... Um, huge improvement and an a major gain in efficiency in the system. There are some things that would need to happen to make the credit markets work better from my perspective. Like some of it's just basic housekeeping. Today, you know, the, all of the credit transactions have to happen on a bilateral basis. An automaker that wants credits has to go and find another automaker that has credits. The, the negotiations happen in secret. No one knows what the price is. Um, it's, it's, it's not a very transparent market. And I think that is inhibiting the efficiency of the market, but I should say it's a growing market. I mean, the number of credit sales, uh, or the number of credits, uh, you know, traded or sold every year has gone up under the current program. It's gone up from, you know, barely, you know, a million metric tons in the first year to last year or to for the last year, we have data 2019 to like more than 50 million metric tons. Um, and so it's growing very quickly. It's becoming not, you know, maybe not the most important, but it's becoming a very important source of compliance for automakers. And so getting that market to work well um, is really important, I think. And it would only be even more important if, if the administration were to take some steps like 
you know, setting the car and truck standards pretty close to each other, narrowing the gap uh, uh, in the attribute based standards. Um, because I, because they can't, they cannot, I don't think just not do, they can't just scrap attribute based standards. It's written into the law. Um, but they could do some things I think that would minimize the impact of the attribute based standards, like making them closer. How much does like Tesla, for instance, just <laughs> released a quarterly report where, uh, I think its entire margin came from selling federal, but especially California credits and, um, and a few other things, but uh, how much does increasing automaker voluntary electrification, for lack of a better term, like we've heard from GM, uh, like Tesla obviously is already doing, at this point I think automakers with 30% of US market share today have committed to voluntary electrification by 2035 or 2040. Obviously that's voluntary. How much does kind of an uneven across the industry electrification uh, process like f uh, affect these credit markets? How should regulators be thinking about the fact that you know some some automakers may in in ten years, which is at the very end of this you know period, but is still kind of within what they're thinking about? Uh, within ten years, some automakers may have a surplus of credits. First of all, uh, you know. I think that the that the standards should be, you know, designed to meet a particular policy goal, uh, and the policy goal is it should be, you know, sort of driven by the science of of, of emissions and transportation. And if uh, automakers, if a technology catches on that automakers, you know, sell lots of that reduce the cost of compliance and and make the system, you know, make it so that they meet or exceed the standards, that's a good thing. Uh, it might over time lead to the, you know, to the policymakers thinking about what the standard should be uh, and whether they should be more stringent. But, you know, so I don't see that as a problem. In fact, like, you know, I think it kind of goes to, I mean, my sense of it, I'm curious what you think, Kuitro. My sense of it is that is it that actually shows the system working. So like, you know, for like, like last year, okay, in 2000, well, let's look at the last two years. So 2018, um, you know, Tesla generated something like, I want to say, uh, 17 million metric tons of net credits in the, in the EPA credit market. And the deficit for the big three combined was like 15 million. So, yeah, I don't really look at that as a, as a, as any kind of a failing. That's like, that's an opportunity, right? So what should be happening is Tesla as long as your policy is calibrated to your sort of like to your science-based outcome, for lack of a better way to say it, as long as your policy is calibrated to achieve what what our ultimate goal is here is a certain amount of, of GHG reductions in transportation, that's a really good outcome. Then that you know the policy is calibrated right. Uh, Tesla is generating enough credits to be able to sell to the automakers and you know, now everyone's in compliance and that, you know, if you, if those were the only four companies in the, in the whole thing, you know, uh, that's a, that's a, an efficient, that's an efficient outcome. And I think it, it's exactly like what Kutra was talking about. Like if, it, you know, over the next like five years, you have some companies that are selling lots of electric vehicles and they're generating credits. Now I should say they're not going to generate as many credits as Tesla has been because the bonus credits are going away. 
uh, you're still going to get zero grams per mile, but you're not going to get you know that multiplied by two and three. But setting that aside, if you have some companies that are doing lots of electrification and they're generating credits and then they're selling them to you know the companies who are selling lots of minivans that are still running on gasoline and and you know and they're through that mechanism, everyone is in compliance. That's exactly the outcome that you want as a policymaker. Maybe I can add something to do, to it. So I overall, I agree with some. So in principle, this is a good thing, right? So Tesla or other companies are making um, efficient cars so that they can get credit because their cars are more efficient than required. And then, you know, they can sell it to the market. So that makes them to improve their MPG even more because this is an incentive. And then other automakers, you know, take advantage of it and buying the credit. And if they don't want to buy it, they have incentive to improve their, their own cars MPGs. So in a sense, this market is, you know, working in principle. Um, but maybe number two point is we want to have a bit of you know, um, a cautious argument about this because of reasons you know, some mentioned. There's a little bit of strange small policies behind. Electric cars got this bonus credit, which was controversial. Like, should we give them or not? Uh, the other thing is many electric cars get other type of tax credits and other subsidies. So on top of it, is can we justify they can get this fuel economy credit? So there's a discussion about those things, right? So we should we should think about that. But uh, if we can ignore those issues, in principle, in this credit uh, trading market, this has been, it looks like it has been working well. I would add number three point, which is related to what Sam mentioned. Um, I guess the market transparency is still very low. Um, as some mentioned, it's mostly by bilateral trading. So automakers have to find their counterpart buyers or sellers. And also from policymakers or researchers' perspective, it's very untransparent. Like what was the price um, and how much they traded? Uh, those exact information is not available to the public. And this is very different from other trading market we have. For example, many electricity market, wholesale electricity market has more transparent open market uh, infrastructure. And there's actually a research about this in electricity market. Some markets shifted from a part of like a partial bilateral trade to more like whole um, uh, open like a market. And then there was a lot of uh, benefit of doing it there was a quantified benefit based on academic research. So there must be more you know, gains from this mechanism if we can actually make the transparent um, marketplace um, possible for um, credit trading market. So we could do probably much better, um, but this is probably a good sign to see trading actually happening among old makers. I guess I just want to um, sort of add these couple of points on the credit markets, which I which I really think are important if they're done right, but I think can actually be there are some problematic aspects of them if they're done in, incorrectly. And I think one thing I've become con more convinced of uh, over the last couple of years is that there was a big kind of original sin in the way these credit markets were set up. 
which was that you know the amount of credits in the system it's not like a regular cap and trade market uh, where the regulator allocates a set number of permits each year that are tied to a policy goal the in some ways it could be like that but it's a little bit of a bank shot because the way that you're allocating credits you know quote unquote is by assigning a fuel economy um, you know standard and then letting people who over comply generate excess credits but in the beginning, you know, in the very first part of the overall program, uh, in advance of the program, the EPA and, and, uh, and NHTSA, the regulators, said that there was going to be an early credit program that would run for the first couple of years before the, before the new standards came into place. So from like 2009 to 2011, um, they, they had this early credit program running. And I think there's more and more a sense that a lot of automakers under basically business as usual conditions were able to generate these enormous surpluses of credits, um, hundreds of millions of credits that they've been sitting on this whole time and that were allowed, they were allowed to carry the, the ones from 2010 and 2011 all the way through to 2021. And so, you know, Part of the reason that that the standards, that performance against the standards has, has not been what the regulators initially projected is because automakers have had all of these credits that they can use to satisfy you know, deficits. And I think you know, those credits all expire, a, you know, a huge amount of credits expire in 2021. And as the Biden administration now is kind of sitting there looking at, all right, how are we going to reform this program going forward? What changes are we going to make as we, you know, as we look even over the next few years, but also post 2026, 2025, um, you know, that's the kind of mistake I think we have to avoid making again, it, it is making the uh, cost of compliance so detached from the policy goal, number one. Two, you know, as we're as we're thinking about those credit markets and how to make them more effective, one problem that I think that the industry or, or one problem that I think is just built into the auto industry with these credit markets is there's just not that many companies. It's not like the EPA SO2 program where you have like hundreds or maybe even thousands of of, of covered entities. Right, it's like a market with like 12 participants. Yeah, there's a small number of companies. And the only way that you're generating credits is by overperformance. And so, you know, there's little things that we've talked about um, where you could say, well, maybe we should let in financial market uh, entities to come into these markets and increase liquidity. And that's fine in, as far as it goes. But at the end of the day, you still only have a handful of companies. And it's, it's going to be a little bit of a thin market. And if you so if you really want these things to function, you want to do these little housekeeping things, the transparency, you want to see the prices, maybe even a centralized kind of auction, of, you know, where it's all really clear and transparent. But I think it would also be desirable to increase the flow, uh, the size of the market. And so one thing I think that would be very interesting uh, to explore is as the Biden administration is uh, pushing a clean electricity standard and as that, that is gaining momentum in Congress, is potentially finding a way to link those two markets. That would be really interesting, like having a, so utilities and automakers could play on the same CO2 market, basically. Yeah. That's 
really interesting. Thank you both for taking time. Um, and um, anything else we should touch on before we go? I'd probably get some uh, heat uh, from a number of people. If I didn't at least mention that we've only talked about fuel economy standards. As we look at the scale of climate, of the climate challenge and of the role of transportation, it's not enough to just regulate efficiency at the lot and then hand the vehicle off. And there's no policy that is governing, that is any way incentivizing people to use less fuel. And some people would say that the way to deal with that is a, car, is a carbon tax or a gas tax. I'm sure there's other ways we could think of. But the fact that we're just doing this at the lot and then the vehicle leaves and there is no incentive uh, to change your behavior, to use less fuel, to take public transportation, whatever it might be, we are not, this policy alone is not going to put us on a pathway to achieving the kinds of reductions in transportation that we need to deal with climate change. What is? I'm willing to go along with complementary, for the, from the perspective of political economy, a complementary set of policies that includes efficiency regulation, but is also heavily reliant on a fuel tax that is calibrated to the social cost of carbon. I love it. Um, very artfully done. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts. 